Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Osiris. We're mass communicating. We're mass here, week out from Boulder, still trying to wrap my head around the bagok that went down on the first leg of the Why We Dance tour. I was fortunate enough to make it out to eight of the 12 shows, including the last three in Boulder and that tractor beam show. And without exaggeration, I can confidently say that was one of the most special runs I've ever been a part of. The shows, the venues, the jams, the crowds, the vibes, everything was impeccable. The bubble of positivity is real, and it's not showing any signs of popping anytime soon. Although I've probably just totally jinxed us. Barbara and I have plans to get together in person real soon to run down the tour highlights. And that's where you all come in. I want you to hit me with your favorite moments, your favorite jams, your best tour stories, observations, questions, criticisms, what have you, so that I can share them with John on the air and get his reaction. There are a couple ways to reach us. First, the Touchdowns All Day Hotline, 424-666-SIYD, 424 424- 666-7493. It's a voicemail. You call. You rant. You ask your questions. You say something funny or weird. We play it on the air. John says something funny or weird. It's a wonderful flywheel of weirdness. There's also social media at Touchdowns All Day, at FY Maxwell. Instagram is the way to reach us. There's the Touchdowns All Day Facebook group. We're on the Robot Savers Discord. There's no shortage of ways for you to reach us, and we want to hear from you. Hopefully by now you're all following us on Instagram. During tour, I had so much fun going live on the Touchdowns All Day Instagram account pre-show and at set break. Got a lot of those pre-show and set break reports archived on the main IG feed. So you'll find interviews with Mark, John, Cloud Cord, band photographer Tara Gracer, New Springfield Boogie's Alex Mazer, and of course, the one and only, the man himself, Crunk Mike. Maybe you were even one of the lucky few who saw me wade into the pit during set break on night one in Boulder, my eyes bugging out of my head. Though for reasons that should be obvious, I thought it better not to post that one for posterity, so... You know, you got to tune in. You got to be looking out during show nights. You never know what sort of fun, weird stuff John and I have in store for you. While you're checking us out online, consider giving us a five-star review on iTunes, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. We love the feedback. There's been so much great feedback. Instead of just telling me at the show that you love the podcast, I want you to go online and post about it. Post a review, post on Twitter, post on Instagram. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show. It boosts us in the algorithm and it lets us know that we're doing this for a reason. If you like what you're hearing, consider sharing an episode with a friend. One way or another, we want to make this cult grow, but we can't do it without you. The Why We Dance Tour resumes on March 7th with a two-night stand at the Fillmore Silver Spring in Silver Spring, Maryland. For all dates and tickets, head over to discobiscuits.com shows. And while you're there, make sure to click on the link at the bottom of the page that says follow the Disco Biscuits. This will let you sign up for text and email notifications so that you'll be amongst the first to find out when the band announces its new tour dates in the future. At this point, I'm going to guess that you're well aware that part two of Revolution in Motion, the Disco Biscuits' forthcoming album, is now available on all major streaming services. March 29th is the official release, but the band is doling out these chapters one by one leading up to the record release party March 29th at Webster Hall in New York City. The four songs that make up part two, Times Square, Freeze, Tourists, and Spaga's Last Stand, are the subject of this very episode of Touchdowns All Day. There's also an animated mini-movie covering the Polyfusion's arrival in Times Square, the Freeze of New York City, and the band's confrontation with Earth's alien invaders. You can find links to all eight of the tracks that have been released so far, both of the animated mini-movies and the band's online store at fanlink.to slash discobiscuits. That's fanlink.to slash discobiscuits. Check out the limited edition LP, 180 gram electric teal and black galaxy glitter vinyl, double LP. My advice, pre-order your copy now or pay $600 on Discogs in four months. With all that out of the way, let's get down to business. Ladies and gentlemen, it's with great excitement and pride that I present to you the second part of Touchdowns All Day's exclusive four-part miniseries on the Disco Biscuit's new space opera, Revolution in Motion. back everybody joining me remotely today from philadelphia so i'm studio john barber oh hey everybody and from the frozen tundra the powdery tundra of colorado joey friedman hey everybody thanks max thanks for having us 
Joey, catch us up on where we are in the story of revolution in motion at the end of chapter one. Yeah, great. So at the end of chapter one, you basically, it ends with another plan of attack. And the song starts with the captain sort of coming out of this coma. They've gone through the wormhole. He was plugged into the ship. He got his circuits fried. And, you know, basically over the course of the song, his crew explains to him sort of what has happened and what they've found, right? You've gone through a wormhole. You've been out for a couple days. And while you were out, we've learned all about this new world. Um, we've learned about this planet Earth. We've learned about the people on the planet Earth. And they've got hands and they play instruments. And they're all going to be in New York City um, on New Year's Eve. Um, and over the course of the song, they basically convinced the captain, hey, let's stop messing around and let's do our jobs, which is to collect alien specimens. And in this case, the aliens are the humans. Um, so, you know, we're going to get you where you want to go is how the song ends. And it's really, you know, them having this moment together saying, you know, we got your back and it, it's time to take the next step in their journey, which is ultimately to fire the freeze. By now, hopefully everyone has seen the chapter one animated mini movie. If you haven't, guys, head over to discobiscuits.com or check out the band's official socials. John, Joey, what's it like seeing your vision realized on screen? I mean, I'll go first. I think it's awesome. Uh, the guys at Blunt Action have been amazing partners in this project. Um, you know, when we created this world, we kind of had, you know, it was, we didn't write it down. We didn't draw it. We just, it was all sort of, spoken it was more like the oral tradition we, we we wrote this song by we built the world verbally um and we without really understanding exactly what they look like although i had sort of my ideas i'm sure john probably had their ideas but having these amazing artists help us manifest this vision in uh you know, a visual form and really bring these characters to life has been a trip and uh i'm really excited uh for the rest of the for the rest of the parts to come out for me it feels very much like music where you can have the song in your head but until people are playing it it's just something you think you hear in your head but it's probably not even that it's weird because you can forget songs that are in your head and lose them forever which is such a bummer and so to picture things in your head is it's hard to really know what it looks like when people start drawing these things. And a lot of people have, I mean, Aaron's kid took a shot at it and did a great job. Blunt action took their shot at it and did a great job. Um, they had a bunch of videos that we did at the mission last year. That was other artists taking a shot at it. And every time I see people make attempts at what it could be, it becomes very real for me, and I always love everybody's attempt at it. I don't have quite the discerning visual template as I do for the audio. So for me, everything is super exciting to watch and enjoy, and I'm really enjoying just all the different takes on it. The blunt action take is they're just such professionals that it's amazing to see what a bunch of professionals do with the story and the characters. I'm very excited. Well, you've created a rich mythology, really interesting uh, vision of what these aliens are like, their civilization, their physical form, their uh, enmeshment within electricity. So with that, guys, let's get into chapter two. And chapter two starts 
coming after four songs set in outer space from the perspectives of the polyfusions, chapter two relocates the action to a much more familiar setting, namely New York City's Times Square, more precisely the theater that's been the setting of so many amazing biscuit shows over the years, whether you call it the PlayStation Theater, the Best Buy Theater, the Nokia Theater Times Square, or more recently, the Palladium Times Square. During our deep dive in chapter one, you both spoke about how the uncanny experience of emerging from the Palladium into an abandoned New York City during the pre-dawn hours of New Year's Day was one of the key inspirations that set this entire project in motion. And I want you to talk about, John, how about talk about a little bit the band's history in Times Square, which at this point I think includes 41 performances since 2008. Oh, that's crazy. I didn't realize it was so many, but we've done a lot of uh, holiday runs in New York because, you know, you do Philly, you want to do something else over the holidays besides Philly. New York's the obvious choice. Um, sometimes you go to, you know, Atlanta or Chicago or Colorado or something like that. But for us, we want people to be able to go to Christmas and then drive to the Biscuit Show and have it be not such a big deal. So New York, if we're not playing Philly, we like to do New York for that reason. Also, there's a lot of people, you know, New York's a popping scene over New Year's Eve. So we've done that a million times. We also were doing uh, like two or three night runs in April at the same venue back in the day. The interesting thing about that room, from my recollection, is that was one of the first sound-treated venues in a modern way. And when they first in, told us about that room, I, I forget when that was. I figure it was like mid-2000s or something. They were like, okay, come play this venue. We had scientists come in and sound-treat it, and architects build the sound-treated version of the theater. And we went in there and really felt like it was a different sound. Nowadays, you have the Mission sound-treated. You have the Fillmore in Philadelphia sound-treated. So there's a lot of these theaters nowadays, but when we first started playing that room, it was you could tell it was a little bit more dead inside. It was a little bit less of a... Like if you go to maybe the Palace in Albany, which is kind of your older style theater, you, it was it's a big boomy theater. It's got an abrasive quality to it. It does the you know the high end bounces around a lot. The cap has that, which is great for rock and roll. It's great for nineteen eighties music, but you want that deader sound for new modern music, and that's why you see a lot of the new venues going in that direction. So we were we were really taken we we could feel the difference in the improv on stage. So we were very interested in playing that room a lot when it first came out. And it was present from from the drop. 2008 oh, yeah. I think was your first appearance there that April and that was when you played a very famous jam that we will talk about quite a bit later in chapter 4 of our Revolution in Motion deep dive. Joey talk to me about being a fan at the Palladium, Best Buy, Nokia, PlayStation, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've always loved it. Um, and and I prefer, I really, I don't know who came up with the name The Unstungeon. Um, somebody <laughs> came up with the name The Unstungeon, and I love that name. So uh, since we, we it, it's tough to keep up with uh, the various corporate sponsorships of the venue, I think going forward, we just call it The Unstungeon. 
Um, and and I think it's so fitting that the Biscuits have played in this underground venue so many times that it's that it's earned such a great nickname. For me, I, I was living in New York City. Uh, actually, no, the first, the very first shows were in April two thousand eight, and I didn't move to New York City until September two thousand eight. Um, but I've seen not every one of the shows you played there, but a large majority of them. I've always loved going to the shows there. I think um, there's always an energy to New York City. It's always a great venue to see the Biscuits. I think the idea of just being underneath Times Square is a really cool thing. I've always really enjoyed the the the, the experience of when you walk in those doors and go down those escalators. Uh, it's just like you know you're what you're about to get yourself into. You're like going down to get yourself into something. Uh, and you're it's probably going to be really good because the band has played some amazing concerts at that venue. Those 2008 April concerts were great. Um, that New Year's run, 2009 New Year's run, I mean, just great New Year's shows there. Um, and this last show was a great show too. Definitely. Joey, with chapter two, we shift our focus from the polyfusions as they're plotting out their assault on Earth to the perspective of an Earthbound narrator Namely, it would appear that of a member of the Bellevue Wrecking Crew. That's right. Dan Carter on Facebook wrote in and asked, Joey, can you tell us about who the Bellevue Wrecking Crew of NYC is and what their role in the space opera is going to be? Yes, I'd love to. I've been, I've been waiting for this. So, so chapter two starts um, really in Times Square with the song Times Square. But the, the song Freeze, the second song of chapter two, is actually happening at the same time. So they're the only two songs that are happening at the same time in the story. One is underground Times Square and one is in the upper atmosphere uh, above Times Square. So you kind of have these two, um, you know, two opposing sides of this story happening. And both of the songs are hype songs, right? Uh, And we'll get into that in a second, um, why they're hype songs. But to get to the Bellevue Wrecking Crew, so the Bellevue Wrecking Crew of NYC is a gang of teenage pickpockets, and they are prolific at pickpocketing. And not only were they, they're they're also a little bit cocky at their skill. So when they would steal somebody's wallet, they would slip a little card in their pocket that said, your wallet's property of the Bellevue Wrecking Crew of NYC. Almost like a little little calling card, like, ding, we gotcha. Um, and because they did this, they become sort of folk heroes, right? It's like it's like they're stealing wallets, and everybody knows who's stealing their wallets, but nobody knows what they look like. Nobody know nobody can catch them. So basically, you know, you know, Times Square is where you're going to want to be pickpocketing people, and New Year's Eve in Times Square is like the day. It's like the Super Bowl of pickpocketing. So leading up. <laughs> Leading up to New Year's, right, there are bulletins everywhere about beware of the Bellevue Wrecking Crew of NYC. There's stories about them on the news. Um, Again, they're kind of like a little bit of a Billy the Kid vibe where there's like some – they're kind of like folk heroes. Like people don't want their wallets stolen, but they also kind of are obsessed with figuring out who is the Bellevue Wrecking Crew and what are they all about and why are they leaving these cards in people's pockets telling them that they stole their wallets. And so that's kind of leading up to, the, to, to New York City, what is happening with that gang. And then that brings you to the band, right? And uh, to all those listening out there, I'm sure that you think the Disco Biscuits um, always know exactly what they want to do on, on New Year's Eve. And they're always super on top of the planning and months and months in advance, <laughs> they've got it all dialed out. But the truth is, is that sometimes on New Year's, the Biscuits are kind of pulling together New Year's a little bit last minute. 
and they don't always know exactly what they want to do for New Year's. So we're leading up to this New Year's. The Bellevue Wrecking Crew is all over TV. They're all over the internet. They're these folk heroes. And the band kind of gets together and they're like, what if for New Year's this year, leading up to the countdown, we come on stage as the Bellevue Wrecking Crew? And, <laughs> and, and basically we imagine that before they go out on a big night, it's the Super Bowl of pickpocketing. They want to get themselves amped up, right? They're like, they're, you know, they're a band, they're a crew. There's the alien that's a crew in the story. There's the band that's a crew in the story. And then there's the Bellevue wrecking crew. And so there's this concept of these tight knit gangs or crews throughout the story. Um, but Barber and, and, and Brownie and the guys are like, I bet they really want to get themselves amped up before they go out pickpocketing. So the band writes, what they imagine the hype song would be for the Bellevue Wrecking Crew that they would sing to get themselves amped up before they go pickpocketing on New Year's Eve. And so what you basically have in the song is, and they did, this, the band actually played this in Chicago last year. The idea is that they go out as the Bellevue Wrecking Crew, they play this new song to the crowd that they wrote as the Bellevue Wrecking Crew, and then leading up into, in, into the countdown, the final Got a Ticket Tonight, Times Square, 10, you know, the idea is that they're going to they're gonna sing that into New Year's, and then that will be the New Year's celebration. So, again, just a, it is the band playing to the crowd as the Bellevue Wrecking Crew, their imagined hype song that the Bellevue Wrecking Crew would sing before they go um, out pickpocketing. And, and the hook is, you know, your wallet's property of the Bellevue Wrecking Crew of NYC. That is ac the actual thing that the, the crew puts on their cards that they slip in people's pockets when they steal their wallets. That is far more complicated and self-reflexive than I ever <laughs> imagined it can be. Let me see if I got this right. So Times Square... It's not only a song in Revolution in Motion, the space opera. It is a song that the Biscuits have written and are debuting in Times Square on the night when all of the action goes down. So it is literally like a song within the structure of the actual world that you've created. That's exactly right. Amazing. Yeah, that's John, did, yeah. John, did you know that? <laughs> yeah, I think that... So I picture the crew as a big crew, not the core three, but like a lot of them. And you kind of don't know where they're coming from. I love the card they slip in your pocket and the vibe. And I just like having like that energy in the in the space opera. It feels good to me. I love it, too, because it's it's almost like a modern day update of those old folk songs, uh, you know, ballads to John Dillinger or Bonnie and Clyde celebrating the exploits of famous criminals and turning their, their stories into legend. You have here the Biscuits turning the Bellevue Wrecking Crew into legends through memorializing them in this hype song. Well, it's funny you say that, Max, because, you know, this ends up being a pretty momentous night in the history of the world. And the Biscuits end up becoming pretty momentous characters in the history of the world. And the last thing they sang about was the Bellevue Wrecking Crew. So the Bellevue Wrecking Crew ends up becoming this legendary, legendary characters in the world, um, in sort of the world that we've created that isn't necessarily all told in the in the plot line of the narrative of the the, the songs that we wrote. But they are huge characters in this world. You know, I'm not sure. I, I think we might hear more about the Bellevue Wrecking Crew in the future. At least I hope so. Me too. Um, one last question before we get into the song itself. 
Does the Bellevue Wrecking Crew know of the biscuits? Do they know that this is going down or any of them somehow snuck downstairs and is working the crowd in the Unstungeon? Uh, are they in any way aware that the biscuits exist and that this song, this ode to their exploits is being performed that night? That's a good question. And, and we have definitely talked about that and thought about that. Um, I'll say that it, it's, it's to be determined exactly whether or not, if, if they do know about the biscuits is because they saw them on that legendary sign right on Times Square that I love. I mean, that's another, we talk about as a fan, I loved walking up to the theater and seeing the disco biscuits in neon light uh, or LED light in Times Square on that awning. I mean, there was that one cool one with like the, with the girls back to back all those years ago. And there's been other cool ones, but I just think that, that, that having the disco biscuits in a huge sign on new year's and times square was always the coolest thing. So the Bellevue wrecking crew is probably aware of them through that sign. They probably know that they're playing, um, whether or not they end up working the crowd for wallets. Uh, it's, it's quite possible. Um, and we'll just have to see. I mean, spun biscuits fans on new year's Eve would be a pickpocket stream. Totally. Not to give anyone any ideas. Yeah, you don't really need, you don't need a, you don't actually need a prolific pickpocketing crew to lose your wallet at a a biscuit show on New Year's Eve. (laughs) Times Square was penned around the same time as Wormhole. We talked about that in chapter one. Like Wormhole, it was based on a beloved biscuits jam, this time the Munchkin invasion from February 4th, 2016. What came first, the lyrics or the decision to use this iconic jam as the basis for a new Revolution in Motion song? Uh, the jam. The jam did. Uh, it's as simple as, you know, we, John and I, from the moment we started this project, had talked about turning songs into jams. And, and we, 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 this weekend was the first weekend where we kind of committed to that idea with both songs that we wrote over this weekend being jams. The one wasn't a classic. The one was a more of a, uh, uh, what's the word, I guess, modern or real time or, uh, you know, jam, you know, the one that we talked about last time. Um, the other one was just J- John had a list. John had a list. Of, he had been thinking about this separately um, and he had a list of jams um, and we listened to them. We just listened to them all and then we picked one. Um, let, me, let me talk about that list for a second. Please. Because that list was created by this podcast. There was an early episode of this podcast where I had mentioned it would be great to have, uh, you know, I don't know exactly how I phrased it, but I was like, what are the best jam moments of the band? And uh, a couple of fans had put together, I think one person in particular, but the name escapes me, but one, one person put together a list of like 15 jams. And basically that jam was in that list. I still have that list on SoundCloud. I listen to it from time to time. There's a couple other really great moments on there that could be made into songs. That one was the one that we chose on that day. So basically the podcast 
and, and you know lit up the fan base to generate this list of jams and then I took the list of jams and played them for Joey and we picked the one that was you know I think most into what we were trying to do at that moment because we knew we were writing a hype song we were trying to write a techno hype song like not a jam band hype song a techno hype song so we needed something that was going to match that and work in that. So that's why we chose that piece. And, I, you know, I, I'm sorry I forget the name of who compiled those jams, but thank you, whoever did that. And, uh, you know, we'll have to shake hands someday. I really appreciate it. And the song's fire. So, you know, thanks for contributing. It was really great. Yeah, let's try to track down the person who came up with that list because perhaps they didn't realize the level of influence that they've had on this amazing <laughs> songwriting partnership and the podcast itself. It's great. The conversation that we have and, and, you know, since we dropped our first episodes of this new chapter of touchdowns all day, we've been getting lots of people writing in with suggestions for covers, for suggestions of jams for you guys to write to there's threads on fantasy tour on Facebook. Constantly people are DMing us uh, on the touchdowns all day, Instagram, Guys, we love the conversation. Keep it coming. The mass communicating, it's not broadcasting. It's a two-way conversation. And as you can see, this is actually impacting the band and the creative process. I'm going to play the first demo of Times Square that I heard. Um, I agree, John, that you made the perfect pick in trying to come up with a track that would work as a hype song, as a techno hype song in particular, because in my notes, I wrote Times Square is the closest the band's ever come to a legitimate club song, not like a crossover jam band electronic music set. But like you could imagine an actual DJ dropping this without anyone thinking, oh, this is live instrumentation or this is a band as opposed to a producer. The risers, the delayed vocals, the interlude where everything but the keyboard drops out. You, you actually you, you achieved your goal of creating a legitimate club banger. Tourist attraction, yeah. You made, <laughs> you made me, we, we changed that one. You're the attractions way better. <laughs> John, I know that your social circle includes a number of DJs, people like Space Cookie, who have opened your ears to new sounds over the last few years, including some of the mixes that were the basis for the 2019 incarnation of Tractor Beam. Did any artists or EDM subgenres influence the sound you were striving for in Times Square? Yeah, there was a couple of uh, hype songs that we listened to. I think there was a Dom Dalla song that we listened to, and there was a, a couple others. I Before everybody showed up, I had kind of listened to all the stuff I thought was appropriate for hype song examples, and I, I put like four or five in a folder, 
and we listened to them all. And I tried to keep, like, when I was steering the ship as we were writing the song, I tried to keep us focused on decisions that people made when composing those songs. And I would play them for them as we went along so they could hear, like, what the finished version of that type of execution and idea sounds like. And I just, for this, this song especially, whenever it would go off the rails into, like, a jam bandy spot, I would I would pull up one of those songs and be like I don't hear anything like that in here, you know? And yeah. so we used that pretty strictly in a song like this. I really like the results that we got, you know, because the goal of this song was let's make a hype song. It wasn't let's make a creative unique piece of music. It was it was very specific and I like going when when we do so when we have the opportunity we write a lot of music when we have the opportunity to write something specific i like to keep the guardrails on and get there and not not get uh you know sloppy in that category because i enjoy that We've talked about the return of Tractor Beam coming this February. John, this is a song that just has Tractor Beam all over it. Is there any chance we might hear a Tractor Beam version of Times Square in our future? Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Why not? <laughs> we don't have a set list. Why do you for mention Tractor that? <laughs> Anything else you want to hear, Tractor? I, I mean, this of, of all the songs in the repertoire, this would require the least amount of adjustment. I feel like in order to have a Tractor Beam version, it, it kind of sounds like Tractor Beam in its original incarnation. Uh, it, it feels like this version that we're listening to right now would be how the Tractor Beam kind of would sound because there is no guitar or bass in there. That's This is an example of us remaking the jam with the techno orchestra, which we talked about in the last episode. Yeah. This is what the techno orchestra sounds like. I'm remaking Alan's beat here. I'm remaking Mark's bass line. I'm remaking the guitars and the keyboards. So it sounds cool and it sounds like them, but it's a remake of it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, a... Uh, uh, a MIDI version of what they played with some sounds. And so I dig this. Yeah. It is definitely a, 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 a demo that from the first time I heard it, I thought, well, they're done this next song, but obviously you kept iterating. So when you do a track that starts with the techno orchestra, when you bring in the rest of the band, how do you, connect the demo that you've done where you're basically doing everything on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? that? That was my free, that was the, that's Forget freeze it. V1. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that. Sorry. <laughs> that's me on the golf Feels course. Like yesterday. <laughs> I like that. Is Neil we'll Zadaka on this podcast? What's going on? <laughs> um, John, what do you do when you bring the live drums and the live bass back into the equation. Uh, how do you meld the two? Well, a big key to melding the two is to try and just let the other guys do it their way. It's just a huge, you have to maintain the artistic and energy ups and downs of the song 
while those parts get completely changed and sometimes for whatever reason, um, you just have to let the other guys do it their way. And then you have to like tighten it up from there has been the strategy that I've been using. Trying to get people to walk in and play a part exactly is uh, it's just a lot of work for them. And it doesn't necessarily give them the ability to be creative. And honestly, this the I'm not a bass player or a drummer. I'm taking those bass lines and drum beats from their performance. So it's them. But so they're going to feel those lines. I'm not worried about them feeling those lines. I'm worried about making sure that the, the, the like, I don't know how to put it, but like the collective brain power of the song goes up. And, and that means giving people like the ability to do whatever they want on the song and to play something that isn't great for a while. And also try different sounds and different feels and stuff like that. So I like let all that stuff happen. Um, and then, you know, at the end of it all, we'll usually play it live a bunch of times. And then at the end of it all, if I love something about the demo, uh, I'll try and put it back into the set. I'll try and put it back into what that person is playing. But a lot of times I hear some great things that they're playing and it changes the whole song for me. And then I don't need that stuff anymore. And then I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't like make a big deal out of them playing it or not playing it because I don't even want that anymore. I want what you're playing now, you know? And so my goal is to get to that level of excitement for me to be excited about what they're, what they decided to do on the track without just by feeling the track and being great at what they do. And like, that's the big goal is to create that scenario. It happens a lot. So it's a very uh, productive way to get this done. Well, guys, I accidentally hit the wrong button and you heard a little bit of what's coming up next. And that is a song that has really evolved into a monster, a centerpiece of the band's repertoire. That is, of course, Freeze. Get so we are back on Earth. The band is underground in the dunce, excuse me, the dunce, the dunce dungeon, <laughs> the dunce dungeon. Oh, man, it's even better. And the Bellevue Wrecking Crew is working the crowd outside the Palladium in Times Square. People are being separated from their wallets. It's the calm before the storm. Joey, take us through what happens next. Yeah, so while while the band is hyping up their crowd, you know, working them up as, as we get up to the to the, the countdown for New Year's, our our crew on the the JP eight thousand collection vessel is the the name of the spaceship, um, <laughs> and and that that's actually something that's a new detail that you know, I'll I'll take a quick pause to say you know throughout this process, and I think I alluded to this before, you know, we started with this high level narrative, and then things happen and the narrative evolves based off of maybe we write a lyric and then we want that lyric to make more sense. So we write the, we make the story more rich to fit the lyrics that we wrote. And, and, um, you know, one of the, one of the things when we were making the blunt action videos, uh, we never actually had a name for the spaceship. Um, but we had to, you know, we were trying to bring these characters to life and, and, you know, again, my, our friend Alex Mazur, uh, helped us out with some things and, and he actually, was the one who came up with the idea of naming the spaceship after the JP-8000, which I thought was obviously an amazing idea. Um, for those of you who don't know, the JP-8000 was Magner's first synthesizer that that the, that 
not first synthesizer ever, but the synthesizer that really gave the biscuits the early in the early days their sound. And so, um, so the crew of the JP eight thousand collection vessel is sitting somewhere in the upper atmosphere, right above New York City, um, and they are getting hyped up themselves. They are getting hyped up to freeze Manhattan. So I think we alluded to this. Um, the Queen had given this this crew a job. Their job was to, to discover some form of alien life and bring it home. This 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 species, the Polyfusians, um, they are an exploratory species. Just like we would explore the deep sea for other types of creatures, they go out into deep space and try to find new life. Now, typically, they're not discovering advanced like human-type life. They're usually finding like, oh, look at this new paramecium or new like – single celled <laughs> organism that we found. Uh, but sometimes they get lucky and they find something not, not usually advanced as humans, but something more advanced. Um, but the, but the idea is that when they, when they come to a planet that they have understood, uh, ha- supports life, they need to collect it. Um, and the way that they collect it is by using this piece of alien machinery that they have called the freeze. Um, now, we've talked a little bit about how this is an electronic species. And what the freeze does is it uses the power of the, the fuzzy crystal, uh, this immense amount of electricity. Um, and when they, when they come to a, a planet right now, if, if you've got a planet that supports life, there's got to be water typically on that planet. And if you've got water... You probably have island bodies, right? Pieces of land surrounded by water. Um, so what the freeze does is it sends massive amounts of electricity into the water surrounding an island. And it sort of superconducts the water. As you know, water is a superconductor. And it and this this effect basically allows it to flash freeze anything that's on the island, right? And the reason that they want to do that is, is they want to collect specimens um, that aren't damaged, right? They want to be able to get them onto the spaceship um, in a really good form so that they can study them later. Uh, they also don't want to come into these these planets and have to go to war like with a bunch of people uh, on the ground. So by freezing wherever it is, you know, they can't freeze a whole planet, but they can freeze an island and it allows them to kind of go in, collect these specimens without damaging them and without getting themselves into some sort of violent conflict when they go into the world. If in fact the species is advanced enough to have a violent conflict. Um, and so, you know, they, they, they're, they're on their spaceship. They're learning all about earth and in, in the in plan of attack. They, they see that on new years, there's all these specimens congregating in Manhattan. They also see that Manhattan's an Island uh, and it's perfect for the freeze, like the perfect size, everything. So what you have in this song is you have the aliens getting hyped up to fire the freeze and to freeze Manhattan on New Year's Eve. Um, and I don't know if we, we can talk about some of the different lyrics and stuff like that, but that's basically what's happening. And this is the moment. So, you know, and essentially they're going to freeze Manhattan right around the time that the biscuits are going to come up into the top of the countdown. And uh, so those two events sort of happen at the, at the same time. So again, the aliens are getting hyped up in the upper atmosphere. Biscuits are getting their fans hyped up below Times Square, and they're all going to meet in the middle uh, by the end of this song. Let me take everyone through the the history of Freeze a little bit. Part of the first batch of demos after Plan of Attack and One Chance that you shared with me, Joey, immediately very infectious. And one of the, excuse me, the first song from Revolution in Motion to be debuted 
live on stage by the Disco Biscuits in Atlanta, June 4th, 2022. And I don't think I'd be speaking out of turn for me to say the first versions were very rudimentary and that since those first versions, Freeze has undergone a massive evolution, Emerging is perhaps the most consistent song in the band's repertoire in 2022. To John's credit, I think John was probably the proponent of really getting these songs on stage, not really saying yeah. they don't need to be perfect, right? We, 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 but, but we got to get them out there. Um, and Freeze was the first one. It also coincided. The band was doing some new things vocally with some of the early iterations of some vocal processing. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of those songs where I knew in my, my heart, I knew in my soul, there was a, a huge song there. And yeah, those first couple versions took a minute, took a minute to get going. But I, I think it really, the one, I, I feel like when it really started hitting its stride was in August on Dumb Tour at the Above Grounds Cavern Show. Yeah. Um, and we worked on it real hard in those trailers before that show. Um, and I think after that, uh, it really started to click. I mean, it was the third place finisher for the title of 2023 Song of the Year. You guys played on... I thought it was second 12, place. Was it second? That was second it, place. Okay, stand corrected. And then right. on 1230, you played a version that inarguably was massive and the best version of that song you've ever played. It, it is a song that is consistently... One of those things that if you are, I, I've said this before, if you're at the show and it's the Freeze show, you know it's a big show. To underscore just how far Freeze has come since its humble origins, I wanted to share with you one of my favorite artifacts from this whole project that Joey <laughs> shared with me. And that is, of course, what I call the golf demo. <laughs> Feels like yesterday. We were just lying around, getting high, nothing else to do. <laughs> now we're on our way. Here my golf clubs, Clank. Look at me, <laughs> Mom got the side set on 6th Avenue. It's New York City. The place of dreams, where dreams are made. No pity. Don't pity, I made it. On the specimens, they're not gonna feel a thing if I free it. I'm walking up, I'm walking up a hill. I'm hopping and puffing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Joey, you gotta work on that cardio. (laughs) That that golf course was one of the hardest golf courses in Colorado. I used to walk it. Uh, I've moved since then, but uh. But yeah, it was it was a I it was a brutal walk, and you could hear my my golf club playing there. But during this time period, I was golfing, and all I was doing was thinking about the rock opera. And uh, I would have these long walks, and I'd be thinking about the song and, and thinking about the lyrics. I'd get my phone every time, you know. I get my phone out. That was John. John's taught me that you know record everything, you know, get it down uh, because you'll forget it. And so those yeah, that was that was both that was before I pitched the song to John. That was. Uh, that was, that was before the song Anything Existed. That was the very earliest version, yeah. But we had some ideas of what music to use. And did we have the hook at that point? Like, are you... We knew that New York was going to get frozen. Um, and, and some of the early sort of... Uh, I think we, we had picked a loop that ultimately became Tourists. Um, and it was supposed to be like sort of that... It, it was more of like an ethereal sort of sound or something like that. Um 
And so we had written, we wrote freeze that we wrote freeze in a day, the whole thing one day. I mean, I don't think we changed a single word after that day. And it was, um, it was in May, which was our third session. Um, so this was our third session. We, we wrote freeze that weekend. We wrote Taurus that weekend and we finished plan of attack. Um, and at this point early on, like now, you know, we'll show up and I won't have a whole lot and we'll figure it out. But, but, but at this point I was trying to show up to every section with one concept, right? The first session I had plan of attack, the concept for plan of attack. The second session I had a concept for shocked. And the third session I kind of showed up with this concept for freeze. And I, I knew that we had to have this song kind of between attack and when New York was frozen, when they actually froze New York. Um, and I kind of mentioned, you know, uh, I, I like sort of hooks that stick with people. And I was thinking about the concept of freeze. And the most obvious thing that came to me was sort of freeze, get your hands up. Um, and I also then was like, well, it would be kind of fun if people put their hands up at the show. And then um, I started thinking about this song, right, and what they would be doing. And, and they had just learned all about humans, right? That's what they were doing when they were on the ship in Plan of Attack. They had learned all about humans. They had learned all about New York. So the concept of this song is sort of them embodying human nature, right? Uh, it, it's a little bit of like, let's get ready, but also embodied. So there's like lines like, uh, going to make some money, throw it around, book a party, spend it all in a day. It's like, that's what they're learning about. People want to do they're, They People want to make money, uh, and they want to throw parties, right? There's, there's a line that says, uh, you know, uh, it's not the human way. They won't feel any pain, right? Yeah. You know, humans, mess each other up all the time. Don't, don't, don't get soft on me now, guys. It's cool. Right. We're going to freeze these people. Um, and, and I, I also had the, uh, at first it was this freeze guns come in after you, this freeze guns come in after yeah. you, uh, which we didn't want to use gun. We wanted to take gun out. Uh, and I actually, I sang that line to John backstage in new Orleans, right before we ended up writing this song. And um, he was into it. I could tell he was into like that vibe. Uh, and so when we showed up at his at his house for that writing session, um, I kind of said, you know, John, I kind of alluded to this in New Orleans, but I've got this idea for a song. Uh, and it's a little bit, you know, it's going to take you. I, I, I wasn't sure how he was going to react to the whole idea, but I was like, I, I think it's a funk song. Um, and I was like, do you have a beat? Because we hadn't picked it yet. We hadn't picked this beat yet. And I said, do you have a beat that's like a space funk beat? And he's like, actually, <laughs> funny you should I ask. do. And he pulled up a beat that was called space funk. Like just pulled it up out of one of his photos. And it was a boom, 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 boom. And I just started singing what I had, which was, you know, feels like yesterday, flying around, causing trouble, nothing left to do. And when I said in New York City, that that line was what you turned to me and you were like, I like that. I like that. And then we <laughs> we just got to work. Right? And then a day and, and, and by the end of the day, we had freeze. So that's really what this song is about. It's they're they're on the spaceship. They've just learned about humans. They're getting hyped up. Uh, in the spaceship, getting all the preparations made and really trying to embody human nature. There was always this idea that on their machinery, they can see down like into the city in this like sort of Google Earth view. So like the freeze, get your hands up is sort of rhetorical, um, you know, they're, 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 you know, and and uh, and then the last lines of the song, take your position, prepare the crystal, no heat for inhibition. You know, that's sort of the the, the final calm before they press the button where everybody's in in position the captain sits down in his chair and it's like all right everybody it's go time 
and then they press the button. And then at the end of the song, it's like that Magner makes that really cool. Wow. Like that cool freeze sound. And, and yeah. the song sort of ends with the freeze being fired. Okay. So much to go back and dive into because one of the things you said, Joey, is exactly what I put in my notes. And I'm really glad that I am, I am keyed into where your head is because I wrote the lyrics wrote the lyrics take us back to the polyfusions perspective as they callously begin their attack on earth. But the interesting thing to me is that the lyrics highlight just how similar the aliens are to their human prey. They're starting to kind of adopt the customs, the culture, you know, they're recognizing we're not that unlike them. They're, 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 they're kind of in the middle of all of the preparations for this assault on earth. They're also like, they're, they're still partying. They're still kind of coming down off of their big binge and they're, you know, recognizing the human way they're, they're trying to figure out these people and they're actually becoming more like them in the process. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and I said this in the last podcast, but where, you know, shocked and freeze are sort of like sister songs, but on the other side of the wormhole Shocked, they're yeah. partying, but they're partying on drugs. They're, they're like, you know, uh, they're high and, and they're kind of cracked out in a way, right, at the end of their rope. Um, and then in freeze, they're clear-headed. And now it's like the natural high of adrenaline of this mission that they're going to take on. And they're very confident and they have purpose. Um, and so, you know, it's sort of, it's not in real life, right? You know, it, it, they talk about like the natural high when you, when you come off of, you stop drinking or you stop doing drugs and then you try to put your energy into something more, uh, more productive. That, that's exactly what's happening in this song. Um, and some of the fun memories for me of making this song was, it was, was John and I, you know, when we were writing these lyrics, you know, I kind of had the first, I had the hook and the first couple lines of the verse, but this was one of those times where John would just be like, I feel like we should, I feel like they would be like, feels like yesterday in New York city, drive around. Yeah. In New York city, drive around, drive we, around, should we should kick it, drop, it, drop top, top in, the in the rain. It was both verses. John would be like, I just want to say drive around. We should kick it. And then I would be like, drop top in the rain. And we'd be like, <laughs> Oh yeah. And in the second verse, he was like, I just want to say, going to make some money. Hey. And our friend Steve had just, had this blowout birthday party and he's like our one friend that's made more money than anybody. And we were like, well, what are you going to do if you make money? Throw it around, book a party, spend it all in a day. So it was like this really fun moment for John and I, where he would throw out this idea. We were, yet, we were basically yes ending the lyrics of the song where yeah. he would throw out this idea. And then I would come in with this other idea. And that's really how this song came to be. Um, and, and the bridge, you know, I, this is the last point I'll make. And then John can talk more about the music. Uh, when I, I wrote the bridge, pretty much word, John didn't, this is one of the few things where John didn't change a word from what I had written. And, and, and I'd always had this image in my head of this part of the song being similar to the suspended in the air jam of astronaut, you know, astronauts, yeah. one of my favorite songs. I talked about it, you know, when I, in the last, in the last, uh, podcast, uh, with one word hooks and the suspended in the air and, you know, I'm inspired by the disco biscuit. There's a lot of writers out there that might say that, you know, I'm inspired by Beethoven or I'm inspired by some poet or something. I, I mean, I'm a disco biscuits fan. I'm inspired by disco biscuits songs. That's my musical education came from the disco biscuits. So um, I was thinking that this, you know, I love the suspended in the air section of astronaut. And I thought that this song could have this really cool section and the lyrics that I wrote there were always intended to be sort of my version of, of suspended in the air. And I feel yeah. like it took a little while for that jam to finally get there. 
but now it's kind of there. And I've even seen fans online saying it, it reminds them of suspended in the air. When I first saw that, like I got so excited because that was the vision realized. But that, you know, even in the last version, when you come back in and Brownstein with the boom, 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 it's just like, that's, that's what I always wanted it to be. And so to see it go from that idea uh, where it's me on the golf course and having these ideas uh, to then John bringing in the beat and John and me kind of taking it from my head and turning it into this song. And then it goes to stage and it took a little while and the fans were rough on it at first. And, but we stuck with it to finally fully see it. it it's realized vision where it's one of the top songs of the year. And it's just been more than any other song. I think this has really run the gamut and uh, it's just been, it's just been great to watch it happen. Well, let's, Take a listen to that earliest demo. And John, you could talk a little bit about the underlying composition and, and, and how it's evolved since this initial draft. Space funk right there. You got to love it. You make a demo, you know, it's total fire and we get to use it. You know what I mean? I, I love the fact that this demo made it into a song. Yeah. Every word, with the exception of the last line of this verse, I don't think we changed yeah. a single word from the demo. It's our nice city lights looking real good on you. Gotta make some money. <laughs> so what motivated the change? 
that was John didn't like John wanted to, John didn't love that line uh, the American way I don't know what it was but I think it ended up we're gonna do it anyway ended up being a way better line and a lot of yeah. times John just has that you know he's written a lot of songs and he has that intuition that there's a better thing to say and that was I, mean, I don't want to speak for him but I think that's probably part of it um, it's hard it's hard to know when a line is awkward for you and so in my opinion if it feels awkward even in the slightest it, we should consider finding something else because you know you might get used to something if you have to go with your initial instinct with the song because you have to like put yourself in the mindset of somebody hearing it for the first time and you know you have to use your taste and your feel i just thought the american way is a phrase it's like an insurance company for old people or something and it just like had so many connotations that were irrelevant for this story this story isn't about yeah. america this story is about the whole planet yes. and the only reason they picked times square is because it's an island and there's a lot of specimens there you know that's it so it has nothing to do with america and um and so i just thought it was a misleading line we did try and sing it a bunch. I tried to make it work a little bit, but I think I think you know you in songwriting. If something hits you a little awkward, you immediately should think about replacing it and going for something better. It seems like every time we replace, we replace with something that I think is one of the best lines of the song. I'm gonna wind it back to the bridge. But this song for me is all about the drum beat. It's all about the where the snare is relative to the hats, the swing, the whole thing. When I made this song, it was just the bass, boom, 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 which was like a hot bass line at the time. Yeah. And they were putting it in over house beats. And I wanted to hear it over something like, I was living in the city at the time. I was living in the grungy part of Brooklyn at the time. And I just wanted to put it over something that was more run DMC, more hip hop, more grungy, more city. You know, I was living a block away from where Notorious B.I.G. grew up. And I yeah. was just like, why can't I make take that bass line, but why do I have to put some like straight up house over it? Why can't I put some swanky over it? And that's what this track was. And then I honestly never thought we were gonna use it. And then Joey asked for the track specifically. And then I was like, all right, this is space funk. Here you go. And then it was, it was kind of a, a kismet meant to be type of situation. That's amazing. So the bridge, which I played back again, just because it's so important. It's become one of the biggest jam vehicles for the Biscuits in the last year. Um, and it's, as Joey said, it's, it's reminiscent of Suspended in the Air from Astronaut. The only other thing I could think of that's as, that can get as atmospheric and ambient and loose is like some of those Coronado hides down an alley jams that you sometimes used to do in Bazaar where everything just melted away. Closest thing that the biscuits ever did to like a grateful dead space jam. Um, mm. you can get very far out there very easily in freeze. And yet you guys somehow have not yet split a freeze inverted a freeze. I think freeze in spite of that has already become this massive statement song. And it seems like it almost has unlimited potential. There's so many places it can go. John talk a little bit about, what it's like to play that internal freeze jam and the freedom that, well, it's, it's highly structured, but it also seems to allocate you guys a lot of freedom to go in different directions. Well, the whole thing about the freeze jam is Joey did tell me that he wanted a suspended of the air type of feel for that jam. 
And it is a nowhere jam, similar to Shocked, because they're like kind of connected in a way. So these were all part of the conversation. And then when I brought it to the band, I kind of didn't say anything about it. I kind of let it go because I wanted to see what they were going to do. And they play it as kind of an ambient G minor jam, which is perfect because I play the jam and I've never told anyone this, including the band. I've never told anyone this. So this is breaking news on the podcast. Um, I play the jam entirely in D minor. I play all D minor chords. I don't play a G minor in the entire thing. I will never play a B flat in that jam unless absolutely necessary. And the B flat really is the difference between the D minor and the G minor. A B flat versus an A, you might say, or a C. So I don't really tell the band that because I, I don't want to influence them. I want them to do what they do. And that's something that has worked in suspended in the air. It works great in reactor. It works great in crickets. Um, you know, for those of you who play disco biscuits and you're like, how do they make reactor so big? Is it chromatic? It's not chromatic. It's a major over F is really what it is where the band is pretty solidly in F, but I'm entirely bought into a major. So I can pull the band in directions by simply playing in modes on top of them that work, but don't bury the, the, the root with them. It doesn't reinforce what they're doing. It creates this kind of duality in the harmony that I used to notice in house music. In house music, they used to do like D major, but they put the bass player in B, which creates a B minor seven feel. And I always used to look at that. And then I tried to talk to the band about it but we were never able to really figure that out in a structured way. So when I want to do stuff like that, I don't even talk to the band about it. I just do it. And they react accordingly because they're pros and they can deal with that situation. And so I feel like Freeze has this nowhere jam plus ethereal thing going on, plus this kind of enmeshed unique harmony that you don't get um, in other songs, um, or really, you know, you know, I mean, you hear it sometimes in other stuff, of course, but people, I don't know if people are jamming in D minor over G minor. I don't know if that, like how people approach their jams. So it has a very unique, uh, situation and that uniqueness creates a lot of situations where people think we're coming around to bury the root, like, like to reinforce the root. And then it doesn't happen. And then it doesn't happen. And then it doesn't happen. And so this thing builds and builds and builds the whole time because people get frustrated and they're like, why, why is this? I'm doing this. Why aren't I getting that? And I'm coming in with my D minor chord. And it's just like, what just happened? And it creates this swirling, like building effect that uh, works really, really well in the, in the Biscuit Jam. So I, I feel like that's basically, you know, I, I guess if the band listens to this podcast, that's what's going on. <laughs> Hopefully Aaron, we didn't hear the last Mark. good freeze jam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mark <laughs> Allen, just, just erase from your memories everything you just heard. We need the magic to stay alive. I mean, um, they can come to magic. D minor with me. They can come to D minor with me. That would be cool. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. No, no. Please, it's really interesting to to get this insight into uh, you know what really is a, a song that delivers magic on stage, uh, New Year's Eve, excuse me, New Year's Run version. So many 
strong versions over the last few years. But again, Freeze has really just emerged. And it's a real testament, John, that you heard that golf course demo. And Joey, you heard that space <laughs> funk track. And somehow you guys managed to bring together these disparate elements into something that with the addition of the band and the different sorts of melodic and harmonic components John was just describing produces just something ineffable and magical. Yeah, I mean, we talk about those magical moments and I will for the rest of my life never forget that moment when you played me space funk and I just pulled out my phone and I started singing over it and I hit that New York City line and and you just kind of looked at me and that's what we knew. We knew we had a song and then we just, you know, we got to work. We got to work and it was a one-day song. It was a one-day song. We never worked on it again, really, uh, after that. I mean, except for to produce the final version. I'd like to say real quick that the demo that Joey made, the voice memo, um, yeah, it's kind of my job to listen to stuff like that and make a good song out of it, no matter what it is, you know. But I think that most good songs have a demo like that in their creation process somewhere. There's some point in time where somebody is doing something else and is forced to record the inspiration that they're having because of some subconscious process in their brain that's generating a piece of music. So when Joey comes to me and he's like, oh, I just had to record this on the golf course, I think to myself, oh, this is probably it, is what I'll think. I won't say that because you don't want to jinx it, but... You know, if he's my, willing to completely crater his round of golf to stop yeah, and record yeah. this song. <laughs> it's probably it had all to right. come out of Joe. Yeah, Joey couldn't wait to get home. It had to yeah. come out in that moment. That's saying something. And it's being processed in his subconscious while he's trying to, you know, not score an eight on the fifth hole in a row. You know what I mean? And I think there's there's some value to that. I don't know what it is, but I think there is some. <laughs> As we transition out of freeze into tourists. Freeze just, I think, so well represents the perfect combination of lyric, track, and story. You, you literally hear this cataclysm unfolding in real time. Magner's keyboards, the freeze sounds, the, the bridge, it, it, it's so cinematic. And I think this is most evident on the final album version it really hit me at that point that while Freeze is a party song, it's also terrifying. Manhattan has just been frozen. Women, children, elderly people, everyone going about their daily lives unexpectedly. Aliens have come and just taken over. Life is, is over. Life as we knew it is now over. And so for this song to simultaneously capture this party vibe, but also to carry this heavy, heavy duty, um, responsibility within the context of the narrative. I, I, I'm, I'm astonished by how well all the elements came together in this song. Yeah. Thanks, Max. And I, I think it is, it, it's, it's one of those songs that is just, it's grown. Um, and it's, it's become really amazing. And, and just this, this idea that these, these aliens are learning about the world and they learn that when somebody points sort of like a weapon at somebody they say freeze get your hands up and that they Im immediately thought like they're going to embody that on their spaceship as they're getting hyped up you know um you know it just says a lot about the aliens and the parallels that they have to us and um yeah i don't i think that's a good 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 spot to move on probably yeah I, I, 
so and many crying. of the songs in the in the opera evoke movies, big scenes. This is to me Independence Day, the White House being destroyed. This is the the, the ship shadowing Manhattan, um, you know, enshrouding it in in ice. And you know, we have just set up the stakes here. Life as we know it is over. How are the biscuits and everyone who is in the Unstungeon going to survive and respond? And that brings us to tourists. So, Joey, set the scene for tourists. So, so what you have in tourists is, um, you know, the aliens have, have fired the freeze and they have frozen Manhattan. And so what you have is you have the surface of Manhattan has all of these frozen human specimens. And um, we can talk about the name Taurus, but I mean, generally speaking, these aliens are coming to Times Square to collect souvenirs. Um, and I always also, uh, when I was a kid, my, my parents used to give me snow globes, right? So I always had sort of this image of a, of a snow globe, which is also the type of souvenir that tourists buy. Um, so there's just this, this whole concept of these aliens have to go collect their, their souvenirs, their, their frozen snow globe like humans. Um, and so, and I mentioned this before, every time we write a song for the space opera, before we started writing it, we would talk about, you know, you know, morning day of the session, we'd go have breakfast, we'd get back, we'd sit down in the studio, what song are we writing today? We're going to write tourists. Um, and here's what's going to happen. Um, and we talk about the people that are in it, or the characters rather that are in it, what they're going through and their perspectives. And then those, those things sort of influence where the song goes. Um, and in this particular song, uh, John actually made a decision, which was sort of a, not, not a sort of a predictable decision about what was going on in the scene. And that is that, you know, these aliens have to come down to the surface. They have to leave the ship, come down to the surface of the planet, inspect the different specimens and ultimately choose the ones that they want to take up. And they put like a little transponder on the frozen human and it gets buzzed up to the ship. And we're sitting there and we're, we, the only line that we knew was part of the song was, do you want to step on the rocket ship? Um, and I told, I talked about this in the last, in the last session, this was a line that John had written in his head. I don't think he ever wrote it down. It was just something that he had going around in his head. And we joked about it almost two years earlier. So the idea behind that line is the aliens are looking at the, at the humans, the frozen humans saying, do you want to step on the rocket ship? It's a rhetorical question. The humans can't answer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they, they're really just talking to themselves and saying, do you want to step on the rocket ship? But but the verses um, are sung by one of the aliens. And, and this was, again, this was John kind of says to me before we start writing. And, and this is one song where John and I both wrote for about two hours separately. Um, and then, then we kind of sang, we kind of went over what both of us wrote and we ultimately kind of put together things that he wrote and I wrote to come to this song. But he said to me, he said, so these aliens, they've been in space partying, right, for years. I'm like, yeah. And he's like, they've never actually gone to a planet to do their job before. I was like, yeah. He's like, so they're basically like rookies and it would probably be pretty intimidating for them to go into some foreign planet. I was like, yeah. He's like, well, then why don't we write this song that kind of reflects sort of some of the insecurities that these aliens may be having when they're on the surface of the planet. Um, and so what you really have is this song that's sung from the perspective of 
one of the aliens uh, in the story. He's sort of the um, the engineer. He's a, he's kind of a scientist. He's kind of a little bit more of one of the, the quote unquote dorkier aliens. Um, and he's sort of having this crisis of confidence on the surface of the planet as he's inspecting these humans. He's starting to almost feel a little bit of sympathy for the humans. Um, he's wondering, hey, maybe is this whole thing a simulation? Am I being tested for my loyalty? So, so that's exactly what you have. You have you have a frozen Manhattan. The the crew comes down on their little mini pods, right? They leave their main spaceship. They come down to the surface. They're inspecting the humans. They're rhetorically asking if they want to step on the rocket ship. And one of these aliens is ultimately sort of having this crisis of confidence because he's never done anything he, he, he just stopped getting high like two weeks ago and now he's on the face of this new planet uh doing this major major job and quite frankly he's a little bit scared that's really fascinating i had a completely different interpretation of the song i thought maybe this was sung from the perspective of of survivors you know people saying i don't want to be stuck inside a world that's frozen i thought it was like maybe depicting life after the freeze, what it's like to be someone who, who somehow wasn't taken back to polyfusia. But I love the idea that these collectors, they themselves have emotions and they have consciences and that they are um, already in the process of carrying out their mission. They're being able, they're, they're beginning to question the ethics of what they're doing. That's right. Well, and they're, and they're worried about being left behind. That's when they say that I don't want to be stuck inside of frozen. I don't want to be left behind oh. on this frozen planet uh, is really what that means. And that was, you know, I'll let John take it from there. Well, I was picturing uh, like, a, like a rookie alien engineer on the streets of Manhattan in a, an astronaut suit. So he's inside this suit. So he has his own atmosphere and stuff. I don't think they're walking around open. I think it's like a, a human on the moon. Like they're in a okay. big suit and I'm picturing him inside this thing. So if you've ever gone scuba diving or anything like that, it becomes very introspective because you're inside something that's in the, you're not in the world. You're inside something that's in the world. So if you say something out loud, the only person who's going to hear it is you. So it's like in your head, right? And you are basically talking to yourself and kind of being very, very, uh, you know, uh, you, you don't have any kind of outlet or friend or anything like that. You're just talking to yourself inside of your suit. And I'm picturing this guy in the street of New York inside the suit, this alien, just like walking around thinking to himself, is this real? Am I being is this them testing me? Am I going to, you know, like, am I, what happens if I take my suit off and run away is like the idea that like, well, he doesn't really want to do this. You know, this isn't, he wanted to party on the ship. He doesn't want to collect specimens. He doesn't even know what they're doing. So he has this thought, like, what if I take off? What if I just run and hide in earth and just ditch this whole ship of lunatics who are just crazy why don't I ditch these guys and bail and just live on this other planet? And then he thinks, oh, my God, like, what if this is all fake and I'm being tested? You know, he's basically going through this kind of paranoia circus in his head of what what's going on. And it's really because he's panicking because he's on Earth grabbing these alien creatures 
and kind of transporting them onto the spaceship. He doesn't know if they're going to unfreeze and kill him. He doesn't know if they're vicious. He doesn't know anything about them. And he's just literally having this situation where he's also wondering, what if he can't get back on the ship? What if he's stuck in this freeze forever? So he's going through all these thoughts and we kind of boiled it down into a song as, as, as well as we could, but it's really from that perspective. It's not from a narrative perspective. It's from, it's an internal thought of one character who happens to be an alien who's, who's on the hustle that day. That's right. And this is dangerous work, right? The line, I don't want to be another casualty of collection, right? Is like people, people yeah. die on these collection missions all the time. Yeah. Things goes bad. They get attacked. People get unfrozen. I mean, this isn't, you know, they're, they're advanced species and they've got great science, but it ain't perfect. Right. So yeah. this yeah. whole concept of I'm down here, I'm scared and I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be another casualty of one of these missions that they tell you about. Right. Yeah. He's, he's frightened. It, 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 in some ways it's almost like the story being told through the perspective of, uh, of an enlisted man who's walking through a battlefield, you know, I know I signed up for this, but this is, this is a lot more than I'm prepared to handle. Like my <laughs> yeah, life is on. That's exactly I might right. Go, I might not make yeah. it home. And not only that, what do I have against these people? You know, he says, strangers in the street wishing I could show some affection. I almost interpreted that as he's feeling sympathy. He's feeling bad for these people. These people are going to be taken home and put in a zoo or cut up and subjected to experiments. He's in this moment realizing this mission that I've dedicated my life to, I don't know if I can go along with it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly what's going on. He's, 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 he literally, we had the conversation about like, what are his options at this point? Does he run away? Does he stay in the freeze? Is this real? Is he going to go back up to the ship and go back to that? Like another perspective of this that we did like have kind of in the conversation was he's been locked on the ship for a long time and he could escape on this day. He'd be escaping to some weird planet, but it's probably better than the ship that he's on. So he has a lot of, weird like he'd almost rather live with the humans than with the aliens and this is that and the aliens are seeing a lot of that they we're trying to to lean into this idea that the aliens really do love the humans that they find the humans interesting and fun and they they have their job to do but at the same time they kind of envy the humans a little bit much yeah, like if you saw yeah. like a go ahead i'm sorry go ahead no, no. And well, and, and I, again, I, I often liken this whole concept of collection to deep sea exploration where you have this, maybe the scientists in a submersible at the depths of the ocean, maybe tagging, tagging some fish that nobody's ever seen before, some octopus or some squid or something like that, or maybe even collecting it, right. Which ultimately is going to lead to that thing dying. Um, but this, this, maybe this, this uh, deep sea explorer has never really felt right on land. And he's always sort of wanted to live in the deep sea with these creatures. And now he has to tag this, you know, basically essentially kill this species to take it up for scientific research. And he feels really bad about it because he loves this thing and he, he feels most comfortable there. Um, and I've always sort of tried to try to see that parallel, you know, with, with those types of parallels between what they're doing 
with with this sort of research type mission and collection of species to what we do all the time in in the oceans um, or in the rainforest or you know in other areas of our own planet that we that we you know may may seem like a faraway world. I love that you're developing this theme of the aliens first seeing Earth as a target, as an opportunity, as something that they could use to fulfill their mission, but slowly becoming more and more human in the process. They're starting to understand our culture. They're starting to uh, uh, admire the way in which we celebrate. They, uh, they certainly have a, a taste for our music. But now they're starting to feel sympathy and they're starting to have regrets. They're starting to say, you know, yes, we are here to collect. But maybe I feel more of an affinity to these people than I do to the place I came from. And that's a complexity that wasn't really clear. I always knew that tourists had this sort of longing in it, that it, that it, it is a very it's a wistful song. There's, there's this kind of underlying sense of, of, of regret or something in it of, of this, you know, of being alienated strangers in the street, wishing I could show some affection. It's people who feel disconnected from others and wanting to connect. And it's really fascinating to find out that it's an alien. It's a polyfusion who is no pun intended alienated from his own culture who's finding something in the earthlings to identify with, but he can't connect with them because he and his comrades have already frozen us. He's turned us into specimens and he's feeling that, that ambivalence or that interior conflict or dissonance. I mean, it couldn't be more, you couldn't be more right on all those points. And John wrote the line, you know, the silent treatment comes again and again. And when you talk about alienation, you know, when in high school or middle school, like the silent treatment is almost like, the the one of the best examples of that concept is when you you know people aren't talking to you um and you're feeling alienated it, it's it's the silent treatment and that's exactly what we're trying to get at in that in that hook um so it's great that you saw that a song about alienated aliens this is a one day song
I mean, we really, we really caught Magner on a, on a, Magner really got the vibe for this song. Those little, those little like three or four note piano melodies are just like straight butter. And um, yeah, Magner just really caught the vibe of what an alien in a spacesuit music would sound like. And so I built a little bit of this beat. I built the groove and the drums and stuff like that. But when it comes to making the music dance, Aaron really showed up to this session and just crushed it. And um, especially the bridge part. Talk about the title. Tourists, not rocket ship. And of course, we know that there was a Biscuits instrumental called Rocket Science for a while. People immediately speculated it might be part of some sort of outer space intergalactic space opera. Uh, but how did you guys arrive in the title of Tourists? Uh, well, I was adamant that the song be called Tourists. And I and was, I was adamant the- that the song was called Rocket Ship. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it basically got to the time that they were supposed to play it for the first time. And I actually I actually wasn't at the debut of this one. I try to make all the debuts, but I can't. And Drew hits me up. He's like, hey, man, they're about to play this song. We got to call it something. And I was like, I'm not, I don't want to budge. And they were like, we don't want to budge. And we were like, well, it'll be Taurus parentheses rocket ship. And I was like, great. Nobody's ever going to call it rocket ship. They'll just call it Taurus anyways. And I'll ultimately get what I want. That's kind of great. what I what Huge fail. Huge fail for the space opera. <laughs> much better name. Rocket ship. Much better name. Much better name. Uh, Taurus is, I mean, I... I think I think I I think song names, especially in a rock opera, are a very important tool to explain what's going on. I mean, we have some songs where the song name isn't a lyric in the song at all uh, because, yeah. you know, the wormhole, for instance. Right. Like we don't say the wormhole in the song, but we say it in the title of the song. Um, and, you know, I, I thought I thought the tourists really spelled out what was happening in this song. Um and rocket ship was something that they were coming from and they were singing in the song. Um, and I can see both arguments, but I'm, I'm happy with the way it came out. And uh... it does a great job of ca- capturing that feeling so familiar to anyone who's ever taken a trip. You're a tourist. You are not, you are there, you are amongst the people, but you are not one of them. You are an alien. Yeah. Uh, John, this, this section describe the the musical language you're using in this part because it's a, a fun departure from the rest of the song well what I did was I, I left the beat on and I turned off all the other music while Aaron was playing and then I told him and I kept telling him to. he's literally playing like over and over and over again just jamming and I'm, he's sitting right here on his keyboard and I'm taking the song and I'm letting him play over the song, get the vibe. He's got a good sound. And then I start removing the stuff that makes the song the song and giving him ideas to move off of the key that he's at. So I'm like, go to G, go to F, go to B flat, right? And I'm just recording everything that he does because with Aaron, you have to record everything he does. And I'm just kind of like keeping mental notes about things that he's doing and then um, he actually picked this section, the the chords of this section. In the midst of that, like I was probably like, it was basically down to drums and he was basically freestyling on the keyboard. 
And then he just kind of came up with this thing. And the thing that we just listened to is like one take, just what he did, you know? And I grabbed that and was like, okay, done. And then I put that in as the bridge because it was just, it's, it had everything to it. And it was just like such a cool thing to hear a synth sound, a synth bass, like a round square bass like that, played the way that Aaron was playing it with the building and the whoop, 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 and like the jazz licks inside of it was so cool. So that was, uh, that's how they got made. It was kind of like a spontaneous Aaron composition. Yeah, and one last thing I want to say about this song, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, this was a song we did pretty much in a, in a day. Um, and it was one of those songs where at like one in the morning, it was a mess, right? It was a complete mess. And, mm. you know, John and I just kind of sat there. Aaron had gone home and we kind of just sat there working on it. And by 3.30 in the morning or four in the morning, the song was where, where it needed to be. And it's basically what you just heard. And one of my favorite moments was, you know, we kind of finished it and we just played it. We probably, it was like 4.30 in the morning. Everybody was asleep and we must have listened to it, I don't know, 10 times in a row, just kind of like dancing around the studio because we were just so jazzed about the way that it had finally turned out. And then you get that exciting moment when like Aaron leaves at one and the song's a mess and you get to send him the bounce at 4.30 in the morning and it's <laughs> yeah. fire and you're, and you send it to Mark and you send it to Aaron and you get the, you get to, you kind of wait for the responses in the morning. Everybody's like, Oh my gosh, this is awesome. That, that I love those pretty, 4.30 pretty cool. texts, Joey. Those are the best. <laughs> Everybody, nobody complains about the 4.30 new song text. You know what I mean? No, no especially on the West coast. It's uh, sometimes I'm still up. Yeah. Um, you know, I live in Colorado, right? And, and, and we don't, we can't, we don't live down the street. So these sessions that we schedule, you know, we, we schedule them for three days or four days and we have a goal and we kind of stop everything else that we're doing. And, and we commit to that time period being all about accomplishing these goals. And sometimes that takes, and we don't, always start the earliest too. We get up, we hang out with Riv, we go get breakfast. We sometimes go do yoga, but once you get going, you don't stop until you feel good that you've accomplished what you wanted to accomplish that day. And sometimes it's four in the morning. Yeah. Now correct me if I'm wrong. Has tourists changed at all from that original demo? Not really. No, it's pretty tight. I mean, we, so that just arrived perfect, fully formed. It's amazing. <laughs> and Freeze and Taurus we wrote in the same weekend. Those were the two songs that we wrote that weekend and both were uh, almost no changes uh, from the way. Yeah, three words between the two of them changed. Yeah. Well, the, the weird thing about Taurus was the phrase, I don't want to be trapped inside a world, that, stuck inside a world that's frozen. That was like the last part. And we didn't think we had a song until we had that. And so we were just kind of messing around with the beat, the, so, the chords and everything. And it was coming together, but we didn't realize it because without that line, you don't have a song. You know, it's like what? Yeah. What is the song then? You know, it's just a, we're saying rocket ship over and over again at that point. So we needed that line. When we got that line, it was really the song came together when we went deep on who's the character. He's singing it. Why is he doing this? And we just went deep on that, which we did, you know, just now. So you get the the train of thought. But until we had the line that crystallized the train of thought, we didn't have a song. Amazing. Well, Joey, take us up speed in the story. We have been dropped into the perspective of this collector, this young engineer who's having a crisis on planet Earth, wondering why he's doing what he's doing, if he should run. 
From there, we go to a song that switches us back to the perspective of the heroes of our story, the Disco Biscuits, and that is Spaga's Last Stand. Yeah, so, so again, sort of like Freeze and Times Square are happening kind of at the same time. Tourists and Spaga's Last Stand are kind of happening at the same time. It's sort of like they're preparing for the freeze as the band is preparing for the countdown. And then they get to Earth and they're kind of going through tourists as the band is now also in the next scene underground after sort of Manhattan has been frozen. Um, and so basically what's happened is the band, you know, the, the Manhattan gets frozen, but the aliens have miscalculated. They didn't realize that the Unst dungeon was so far underground <laughs> that the freeze wasn't going to work on the people in that room. Um, so, you know, the, the band is singing Times Square. It goes up to midnight. The countdown happens. And all of a sudden, just like electrical power shocks and the lights are flashing and then powers out. Um, and everybody, but nobody's frozen in, in the venue, basically. Um, and all quickly, they realize that something terrible has happened up, up, up top. Somebody's reporting, everybody's, everybody's frozen up, up top. And, and, um, the band kind of comes together, uh, and they're not really sure what, what to do. Right. Uh, they, 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 they get word sort of that there's these, these, there's aliens, right. And everything's frozen. Um, and, and, and the gist of the song is Magner has a great idea. Yada, yada, yada. The whole band gets captured and zapped up to the spaceship. You know, that's, that's, that's the gist of this song. Um, you know, and, and so, so that's exactly what happens. Magner's idea is, Hey guys, you know, we're probably all going to die, but the only thing we're really good at is music. And these aliens may be interested in our form of music. And so let's grab our instruments and march upstairs and confront these aliens with the only thing that we really know how to, how to do at, at that expert level. Um, and, and we'll see what happens. Um, and ultimately it, it ends up being what needed to happen. But at the time that they get zapped up to the spaceship, they're not really quite sure. So that's, that's exactly right. So it's, it's, it's Magner's sort of hero moment. Um, you know, but the joke behind the song has always been Magner's got a great idea. Yada, yada, yada. The whole band gets captured. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, the funny, the, thing song, about, the funny thing about Spaga's Last Stand is, you know, there's a lot of details that we add to this story as we go. Spaga doing what he does is the like part of the initial script of the whole thing. Yes. It's like day one. Really? This was a day, day one, one concept. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we were we were we were meeting in our November planning session, which we've talked about a lot. We were we had to get the band on the spaceship. Right. And, and, yes. and how we did that, it, it didn't really matter. And we didn't really want to get into all the, the gist of it. Right. You know, we just needed to get them there. Um, and at one point I had, had, the, had kind of a thought about every band member sort of having their own song and, and we just kind of did, we didn't have enough, enough room for it in the story. But this yeah. idea, you know, if you know anything about the biscuits, right. You know, you've got John and Mark and they're these, you know, no offense, John, but you guys are these very big personalities with, you know, that kind of, you know, sometimes, you know, are feel very strongly about the way things should go. And Aaron's kind of been the guy in the middle of the two of you for this whole career. And um, and he's had to uh, I don't know, maybe, you know, he's had to he's had to learn how to play that role. You know, we go back to the wormhole and everybody plays a role and the role in the Disco Biscuits that Magner plays 
I think has been an incredibly important role over the years yeah. as a balance uh, to that sort of just like front man energy that you and you and Mark have always brought to the table. Um, and so, you know, this idea that Magner's ideas have always kind of been poo-pooed or always get overshadowed by other people's ideas was this in, in this studio, me and John just joking around. We're like, what if Magner just has a great idea and yada, 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 the band gets captured on the spaceship. We laughed about this for so long. And then when we told Magner the story in that hotel room, we told him about this idea and he just loved it. He immediately was like, this is amazing. I was like, Magner, this is your hero song. And, uh, you know, Sammy always called Magner Spaga. Right. It was always, yeah. you know, and I don't know if anybody else ever called Magner Spaga, but Sammy definitely called Magner Spaga. And in my head, the song Spaga has always been about a dragon slayer. But in my head, it was always Magner's sort of alter ego as a hero. Yes. Right. Like the, he, he's a little guy, but he thinks he thinks he's a big, you know, dragon slaying type of guy. And so, you know, this idea that in this moment, when this moment needs a hero, that Magner, you know, steps up. It's really like Spaga's last day, right? It's his real life, you know, real life hero moment that ultimately yada, 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 gets everybody captured on the spaceship. And, and that's sort of the whole gist behind the song. And the lyrics reflect that, right? And, and, and this is the one song we've got two callbacks to other Biscuit songs. Um, no Shiny Armor is a callback to Spaga. A Case of Mild Insanity is a callback to Mindless Dribble. Um, but the idea is at the end of this song, he convinces the band to grab their instruments, you know, no thought to amps or chords or anything. Just not John grabs his guitar. Mark grabs his bass. Magner grabs a synth, the virus. Alan just grabs some drumsticks and they go marching up the, the back door. And, and when they get to the, the, the stage door, the same alien who was having that crisis of confidence has found himself sort of like uh. cowering by the stage door of the Nokia theater. And they blast out the door and they have this immediate conference. They, they all kind of, make eyes and and this guy everybody's supposed to be frozen uh and so he's like oh my gosh there's this these four guys with instruments that aren't frozen and he like kind of radios to the ship and he kind of put he just zaps them too and everybody kind of the frozen people that have had the transponders go up the aliens go up the band goes up and that's the last moment of the story that happens on earth amazing so one of the things i love the most about spaga's last stand is how self-referential and meta it is. It's a biscuit song about biscuits songs and about a member of the biscuits and about the identity that he has. Joey, you're not the only person who imagines the little man's courage being the courage of Magner in Spaga. He is the dragon slayer. So I want to kind of unpack as Joey has already begun to do some of these layers of self-referentiality that are packed in here. Um, I know that you said from the beginning it was always Magner, but one of my notes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it to you again is, so why is it Aaron, to, the one to take the stand, as opposed to Mark or Alan or John, one of the more outspoken members of the band, or in Alan's case, the, the only one who's physically fit enough to actually do hand-to-hand -hand combat against <laughs> aliens? Um, why I, 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 it, it makes perfect sense, but I also, I still want to know why is it that, that Aaron is the one who has this kind of moment of courage in the face of this catastrophe? Me too. I'd like to know that too. Well, uh, for, for one, uh, for one, I, I feel like 
especially in times of the band history when maybe uh, things haven't been as great as they are now, Aaron sort of been the one that's kind of tried to keep it all together a little bit. Um, I think that also Aaron's the one who always gets the most anxiety about the, the new year's ideas or, you know, Hey guys, let's try this. Right. He's always kind of like throwing out ideas that may or may not, you know, he's the guy that's going to send the email, but may or may not, somebody may reply to it or not. Um, so I, I just thought that in this kind of moment, the fact that he would be the one to kind of step up and, and, and throw out this idea and Mark and John kind of be like, well, you know, you know, at least if it goes wrong, it's Aaron's fault, you know, something like that. You know? <laughs> I mean, look, 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 it, over the years in the band, Aaron has, you know, we've tried to do things like let's, do you remember the, uh, the, the first history of the disco biscuits where mm -hmm. there was the whole, Forget. Little disco biscuits sitting in the blind in Upper Darby, right? Like, you know, we were all supposed to write like a killer song for New Year's for that has to do with the biscuits. And Aaron shows up with that. You know what I mean? So it's like so like weird and mellow and jazzy and strange. And like, so Aaron has this reputation for having yeah. ideas that are not down the beaten path of techno jam band. Like he's always kind of fighting to go right or go left or go in some crazy direction. He, he has trouble staying on the path, you know what I mean? Where, where I feel like Mark and I, our ideas in these situations would be very on message. Like Helicopters New Year's Eve was techno jam band New Year's Eve. It was very on message idea for New Year's Eve. And, yeah. uh, and yet not all messages, Aaron has a tendency to come up with these other ideas, which, you know, to his, it's kind of part of his job because he has to create atmospheres that are interesting, jam after jam after jam. So he has to draw from all sorts of weird places and you have to kind of go with Aaron when he's going down that trail, as weird as it may be. And I think that's kind of what happened here is, Aaron's idea to go up and check out what's going on and let's bring our instruments. And the band's like, <laughs> well, I mean, we kind of got to go with it, see what happens, is the, the, the joke is that if somebody was going to have that idea in our band, it would be Aaron, you know what I mean? Like, you know, Mark would probably be like, let's smoke a joint and think it through. <laughs> and I would probably be like, you know, Alan would probably want to go back on stage. I would be like, let's record a beat right now. But Aaron would be like, let's take our instruments and go see what's going on and what could happen, you know? And that's kind of what the joke is. Amazing. So I spoke to Aaron about Spaga's last stand. Here's what he had to say. Nice. What I really wanted to do with Spaga's last stand, because it was like, it, it was kind of carte blanche musically when we first started it, right? Um, obviously, there was the storyline that, you know, we definitely knew that that informed what the song was going to be. Um, but when I when I started it, um, you know, we were together for another really long writing session uh, with John and Joey and John had a wedding or something like that that he needed to go to. And we were like, dude, like, we're, we're, we're good. We're going to write Spaga's Last Stand. And he was like, have fun. And I was like, great. Now I have like even more flexibility. And I was really into like, like 
cinematic landscapes, right? Like I think in my fantasy world, I want to like score a movie. Um, and so I, I've been kind of like collecting some more software that enables me to do that. And I was like, this would be a perfect opportunity. You know, I kind of have carte blanche and I started doing it and it was, it began and I was like, okay, and here we go and trust in the process. And it wasn't really getting there. And Joey was like kind of getting itchy. And I was like, yeah, come on, you got to wait till it develops. And then we got to a point where it was like, oh, we, we need to completely change directions. And he was like, I've been waiting for you to say that. And I was like, okay, new influence, new influence. Like, you know, like I was all like into like, you know, I was in a Hans Zimmer stage or something like that. Um, so I, I, I was like, okay, let's listen to like some, some like Harold Faltemeyer, right? Who wrote the music to Axel F. He wrote the music to Fletch. Um, you know, like a lot of those like 80s soundtracks, even if it's not Harold Faltemeyer, you know, the, the Jan Hammer and Miami Vice type of stuff, right? So kind of like started listening to that and tuned our ears to some of the tones that, you know, were going on. So there was a lot of like rototoms type stuff. So you, you hear some of that in the, um, in the e-drums. Um, and, you know, keep it simple, stupid, right? Like, especially me, I always feel a need to kind of like make things more complex musically than they need to be. And I think it's one of the things that um, my maturity has been teaching me is to kind of like, you know, keep it simple. It doesn't need to have all of these colors, all of these flavors. Um, and so after listening to some of that 80s movies uh, soundtracks and getting inspired by that, it was like, okay, let's go. And once I got a palette together of, you know, rototoms and what I want my drums to sound like and some bass and, you know, some, some 80 synth stabs, I was like, okay. And that is kind of what began the song from there. Um, and then it was kind of like easy. The middle section, da -da 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 -da, right. That like felt very video gamey which I didn't think was appropriate, but we were able to kind of like rationalize why it, why it was appropriate, you know, or getting beamed up into the spaceship. Right. Um, and, and yeah, you know, the song kind of came together great after that. And so that section, which was sounding very video gamey at the time, we were able to simple, simply dumb it down by, not having eight bit type tones that, you know, the section was kind of like written. I was like, Ooh, this is fun. This sounds like a video game and kind of did it. Right. And once I took it off of that eight bit kind of like Nintendo Sega type of sound, then it was like, Oh, now it could be a song and not the theme of a video game. But if it was a theme of a video game, that'd be awesome too. Of course you say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Magner. Just Magner doing Magner things. I mean, it's great of you as a podcast host to do the extra work and to get quotes like that for the story. Much appreciated, dude. Great stuff. I'm always working, John. You know that about me. <laughs> so I, I, I knew the fan base would probably be a little hesitant to accept the song named Spaga's Last Stand. It was like definitely a risk we took by taking this song that's pretty referential to the catalog and sort of bringing it back in this way. But I, I we, you know, it was such a, a, an early good moment for John and I, and then Aaron, um, that brought us, you know, it was one of those early moments that just made us feel like what we were doing was the right thing, uh, that, 
that we felt important about it. And I, I grew up near Gettysburg, uh, the battlefield, and there was this famous battle at Gettysburg uh, called Pickett's, Pickett's Charge, right, where this Confederate General Pickett, like, basically – it's like he rallies all the troops he had left and he's like, come on, guys, we're going to do it. And he basically marches them all to their death. Right. And the mm-hmm. union ultimately wins the Civil War. Uh, and I'm definitely a union guy. Uh, you know, let, let, let that be known. Thanks but that, for clarifying that. But but that but that idea of like, uh, you know, this last this last charge. Right. Despite the fact that we're probably going to lose, but I'm going to rally the troops and we're yeah. going to go face this invisible foe together. Uh, always kind of resonated with me, and that's sort of where the the inspiration for that all came from. And and we all just laughed. We just laughed about it so much uh, from the very beginning. Well, I want to play the demo. We always knew from December when we or November twenty one, we knew there was a song called Spaga's Last Stand, but it kind of just was one of those songs that kind of got kept getting pushed back and getting pushed back. So this night when John had to go to the wedding was the perfect night for Aaron and I to work on Spaga's Last Stand. And we get in there and for 30 minutes, Aaron is like writing this dark, moody, composition and I was like falling asleep. I really was. It was just dark and he was, I was letting him go. I didn't want to like stifle his creativity, but it was just like very like uh, almost like the type of like, like the score to Batman returns or something like that. (laughs) And at at some point I was like, Magner, I was like, dude, what are you doing? I was like, this is your, this is your theme song here. And, and this is the most dark and boring thing I've ever heard in my life. I was like, I need this to be a little bit more Beverly Hills Cop and a little bit less The Dark Knight Rises. And, and he goes, he's like, he's like, you know what? I think you're right. He's like, thank you for giving me the space to explore that thought that I was having. But... Now let's listen to some Beverly Hills Cop, you know, and and we listened to it, and then immediately he just starts it with the bounce, 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 and I was like, finally, then I could start writing something over that because I wasn't like falling asleep in my hand, um, yeah. and we 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 came up, we me and him in a couple hours from that, that like took a half hour, and the next three hours we wrote what you know maybe eighty percent of the song, and we were so proud for when John came home from the wedding that we got to like, it was kind of like proud kids, like to their dad, like showing them the project that they had been working on. And cause we knew that John thought that we were going to get absolutely nothing done while he was at this wedding. And meanwhile, we came up with this song and we were so happy with it. And that is the true story behind us. Amazing. There was no chance that they were going to come up with anything. And (laughs) (laughs) And <laughs> when I got into the studio, this track was a bloody mess, <laughs> sound-wise, <laughs> sonically speaking. But like, it was just so Spongebob's Last Stand at the same time. It was so like, the, it was so cool, and it had this like big techno first three notes of the chorus, which I was like worried in my mind i was like how do we protect that when the band does it because it's hard to do that kind of stuff 
And I think we pulled that off and it just, it ended up work, you know, we worked the song over and made it happen. But it, it was very, it's definitely that feeling of, of uh, it feels like the kind of, it just works. The song just works on a lot of levels. And I'm so excited for everybody to hear the studio version of this song. Yeah. I think the studio version of this song came out so good. It pops so hard. It may be one of those songs that may actually be better in the studio than what the Biscuits have played it on stage, even though we've the last version of it in Miami I thought was really, really good. But the studio version is so 80s and so funky and so fun. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it really came out great. Yeah, our friend Steve has identified this as as the single, as the hit from the album, which is going to surprise a lot of people when they hear the album version. I agree. I agree with that. It's it's so it feels it just feel warms your body up, you know, in a unique way. Yeah, and it, and the lyrics are just super on the nose, right? You know, science fiction is playing out on the streets. The only weapon I got with me are my keys, his keyboard, right? And no shiny armor protects me. Only my honor in a case of mild insanity, right? It's like, you yeah. know, we got biscuits, throwbacks. It's saying exactly what's going on. And, you know, it's his time to save the day and music is the Disco Biscuits power. So, um, you know, it's, it again, from that idea, from me and John laughing about this joke we had about Magner's hero moment to uh, the studio track that you're all going to get to listen to when this podcast comes out has been has been a really great uh, evolution and, and really fun to participate in. So Spaka's Last Stand was the last of the Revolution in Motion songs to debut, 1231-22 in Chicago. It's also the last song that has yet to really be opened up and explored, with the exception of that Miami version. John, any thoughts on how you'd like to see Spaga's Last Stand evolve on stage? Well, I think that Spaga's Last Stand is one of those songs that I just, I like to sing it. I like the vibe of it. I like the don't, dun, don't, da, da. Um, I like the little swing to it. And I, I really would want to just put it like a much higher rotation that it unfortunately has trouble getting into because there's just so much stuff going on. Um, yeah. You know, so that's, I don't, I don't have like a vision for the jam necessarily for this song. Uh, I don't know if it needs one. I think it really for a song like this to blow up, you just got to play it a lot. And, um, and, you know, we're doing a lot of shows this winter and fall. So hopefully this song will be one of the highest rotation songs in the whole thing. Like, I feel like this song, if we get to the end of the tour and we're like, oh, we played Spaga's Last Stand as much as any other song, I think that would be good for the tour and good for this song. So, Joey, as we wrap up chapter two, give us one last recap of where the story stands and a little preview of what we can expect when chapter three drops in a few weeks. Yeah, thanks, Max. So again, you know, we started this out with 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 sort of uh, dueling hype songs, right? The band hyping up the crowd on behalf of the Bellevue Wrecking Crew underground in the Unstungeon, while the aliens on the JP 8000 collection vessels were hyping themselves up to freeze New York. Um, and then they did that. And then we kind of moved to the next section where they come down to New York. They're exploring their frozen specimens. They're trying to figure out who to choose to bring onto the rocket ship. Um, and while that's happening on the on the surface of Manhattan, the, the, the band is underground trying to figure out what to do. And our buddy Magner has this brilliant idea um, to, you know, let's grab our instruments and just go upstairs and, and figure out what to do next, which ultimately ends with this 
sort of confrontation. I use the word confrontation lightly. It's not like a violent confrontation, but it's basically they, uh, they square off. It's like, the aliens are like, oh my gosh, there are unfrozen people right in front of us. And the band's like, oh my gosh, there's aliens standing in front of us. And it ends with like a quick, like, we got to get out of here, guys, by the aliens. And they just zap up the band. They zap up the the, the frozen specimens. And, and, and at the end of this chapter, this is the last moment of the story that, that occurs on Earth. Um, and from this point on, the band is in space. Um, and that, that's where we, that's where we leave it. Stay tuned. Chapter three of our revolution in motion director's commentary track will be coming soon on touchdowns all day. John, Joey, thank you once again for taking time out to join us. Thank you, Max. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Max. This is fun. We'll leave it there. Make sure to stay tuned to Touchdowns All Day for part three in our four-part Revolution in Motion miniseries coming soon wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, we're working on a lot of exciting content for you in the coming months. I already mentioned our series commemorating 1999, the year that broke the Disco Biscuits. I mentioned a listener feedback show with John and me taking your questions on the air. Get them into us at 424-666-SIYD via the Touchdowns All Day Facebook page or on Instagram at Touchdowns All Day or at FY Maxwell. We've got plans for an episode on Tractor Beam. I've got something in the works with guitar tech extraordinaire Nick Francis. I've got Nicholas Schmidl tentatively lined up to discuss the Very Moon musical. I'm overdue for a long-form sit-down with Alan. There's so much going on in the Disco Biscuits universe right now, and that means so much exciting material to cover on the pod. Until then, I'll ask you one more time to rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify, to share an episode with a friend, and to spread the word about this renaissance that the Disco Biscuits are experiencing. I never thought that 28 years into this band's career, we'd be debating if the tour they just played was one of the best ever. And yet here we are. I, for one, can't wait to hear what comes next. Touchdowns All Day is an Osiris Media production. Check us out on the web at www.touchdownsallday.com. Use the hashtag touchdowns all day on all social platforms. You can find John at Barber Shreds and I'm at FY Maxwell. Hit us up. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Max Dawson with the assistance of the one and only Bruce Wayne. I mean, Crunk Bike. Our photographer is Tara Gracer. I want to give special thanks to Mark, Aaron, Alan, John, and the entire Disco Biscuits organization. Ben Baruch and Andrew Kaplan at 1111 Management. Andy Bazani and Mike Walsh at the Biscuits Internet Project on the web at www.discobiscuits.net. Rich Steele and Drew Granicelli for audio support. 
Ben Singer, and the entire Disco Biscuits road crew. That's Rich Hartranft, Nick Francis, Matt Sikorsky, Brian Waldar, Alex Hermschneider, and Ben Travers. Steve Martocci and Joey Friedman, Scott McClintock, Think Tank Dubs. And finally, an extra special thanks to Lisa Gutwillig, Deb Brownstein, Angelica Magner, Sandra O'Quinn, Andrea Rivers, and Avery McMahon. On behalf of John Barber, Crunk Mike, and the entire Touchdowns All Day family, this is Max Dawson saying see you next time. We're mass communicating. We're mass